0: Welcome to the Champs App Podcast, where we help players and parents demystify the world of minor hockey development and recruiting for both girls and boys. On today's episode, I talk with Jim Plumer, who is the head coach with the University of Vermont's Women's Hockey Program. We talk about how he became a D1 head coach without ever playing college or pro hockey, what it's like to play at UVM, and you won't want to miss his advice on what to do during the spring and summer recruiting season. I really hope you enjoy this episode. Before we get to today's amazing episode, I wanted to talk to you about the app part of Champs App. If you've listened to this podcast before, you know I spend a lot of time talking with coaches, parents, and players about the hockey recruiting process. One of the key questions that people want to know is, how does a player get noticed by college coaches? While there are many ways to be discovered, the easiest way to get on a college's radar is to send a coach an email and provide them all the information they need to assess if you are a player worth keeping their eyes on. That's where the app part of Champs app comes in. Champs app was designed based on all the conversations and feedback we received about the recruiting process, and we built a tool to help players and coaches connect with a ton of the information they want to know. It all starts with creating a free, beautiful Champs app profile. After that, there are some pretty magical things that can happen to help make the recruiting process a little less overwhelming. Your Champs app profile includes all the basic academic, Personal and athletic information coaches want to know. Then, by including video, schedule information, and your coach's contact details, colleges can easily start their evaluation process. You just copy and paste your personalized link and send it to coaches so they can see your public player profile without even having to log in or create a Champs app account. Or you can connect directly with coaches on Champs app. More and more coaches are creating their own Champs app profiles and connecting with players themselves every day. Now coaches can have all the information they need to assess where you might fit in their recruiting plans. Even better, college coaches can track your progress throughout the winter and showcase seasons because as you make changes to your profile, coaches will get notified to your updates. And in the future, we will be adding even more amazing features to improve your visibility to the recruiting process and hopefully increase your odds of success. If you want to see what a player or coach profile looks like before you start your own, look in the show notes to see some examples. My kids and I have used Champs app for their recruiting process. In fact, my son was invited to a AAA tryout thanks to his Champs app profile. So go to www.champs.app and start your player or coach profile. It only takes about 15 to 20 minutes to complete most of your key information. Good luck, and please let us know how it helped with your recruiting journey. I'm very excited to have on the podcast, University of Vermont's all-time winningest coach in program history, Jim Plumer. Originally from Norwood, Massachusetts, his coaching stops have included Colby College, North Yarmouth Academy, Bowdoin College, Amherst College, and then UVM, where he's been for the last 10 years. Welcome to the podcast, Jim.
1: Thank you, Ray. appreciate the opportunity to be here. I really appreciate what you do for, for women's hockey.
0: So, uh, first of all, I want to congratulate you on just an outstanding season. Um, I think it's the first time in several years you've been more than one game over five hundred. So uh, you're actually uh, like twice <laughs> over five hundred, I believe, uh, this year. Yeah. So, congratulations on just an outstanding season. Thank you very much. Um, it was it was a lot of fun,
1: and um, as as anyone who coached in through these last two COVID years knows, it's been it's been really challenging, and I think. Uh, for us for us to break through and have this this kind of year with the challenges that we've had, it made it even that much more special. So thank you.
0: That's awesome. So uh, why don't we start off like we do all of our guests. Uh, tell us a little bit about your hockey history um, especially you know what what your love for the game and then how you kind of got into coaching uh, and, and especially what you did as a kid to play hockey since uh, I understand you, you didn't play professional hockey.
1: No no um, I probably have one of the more unusual career paths of, of any college coaches. Uh, I grew up in a in a hockey craze suburb of Boston in the Bobby Orr era um, and played a lot of played a lot of pond hockey had uh, a lot of a lot of rink rinks in the neighborhood uh, in people's side yards in fact uh, there was there was twin twins who were first cousins of Mike Bossy, who's uh, famously been in the news recently uh, where I played a lot of a lot of hockey was more or less self-taught uh, grew up in a in a very Athletic town, a lot of successful sports that, that influenced me. I was part of a state championship football, te- high school football team in Massachusetts uh, that, that had a big impact on my coaching philosophy and I think my passion for sports. But um, my parents and I seemed to disagree on whether they wouldn't let me play hockey. I never asked to play hockey, but I hockey was always my first love. And uh, when I went to college, I, I was a very competent, self-taught, hockey player and even tried out for the Colby team, which in those days was very good. They weren't, there wasn't even a division three in those days. They were considered division two, would play like Lowell and Merrimack and even played Maine when they first started their program and um, tried out uh, my senior year, um, wasn't intimidated to play with a bunch of people that were recruited to go there and play hockey, um, didn't make the team, which... Not surprising to anybody, but got the opportunity to help out with the women's team. At that time, Colby uh, had one of the few women's teams and there were no divisions. We played anybody that had a team, Brown, Barber, uh, the UNH, Providence, Harvard. Um, and that was my first exposure to any structure of hockey. Uh, coached with a guy named Bob Ewell, who went on to Princeton and uh, whose son Nate is uh, a, a prominent hockey person worked for hockey college hockey inc um and then basically uh really didn't pick up coaching again until i had a son that was playing and i started coaching all his sports and really got the bug had the opportunity to get involved in a high school program Uh, so Long story short, owned a business in in the Portland, Maine area. Um, I, I think at some point realized I was working to support my volunteer coaching habit. as a coaching director for Casco Bay Hockey and um, thought I might want to transition later later in life into coaching and teaching. Had the opportunity to to, to become the JV girls hockey coach at North Yarmouth Academy, which famously has uh, the Travis Roy Arena. That's where Travis is from. Yeah. and um, took over the, the head coaching, the, the varsity team the next year, was really hooked on. Uh, it was my first experience back in with the girls exclusively. Uh, became friendly with Michelle Amidon, who at the time was the, the, the boating coach. We had some aspiring college players. I wanted to learn what it took to become a college player, and then struck up a friendship with Michelle. And she basically recruited me at age 40, to uh, become her assistant coach and at that time I thought I can't do this I was a single parent and had a 12 year old son and owned a small business but then when I really thought about it I thought well when, when would I get this opportunity they were a very successful program this was uh, really the, the, the dawning of the NCAA era of women's hockey in 2000 it was 2000-2001 I was immediately hooked uh, at the end of that first year I as I like to say, I sold everything I owned, which wasn't much. I sold my business and my, my house in order to um, support this career change. And I uh, said I'd give myself two years to get a head coaching job. And two years See, later, I got the huh? Well, right. That was at the end of my first year. So at the end of yeah. year three at Bowdoin, um, I was fortunate. We were a very good team. Made it to the NCAA Frozen for the first two years. They had Division three women's hockey as an NCAA sport, and I uh, got the job at, at Amherst College.
0: All right, so before you go into Amherst, I got a question for you. So you're, yeah. you're, you're probably the first coach that I've spoken to who didn't play college hockey. So yeah. I'm going to ask the reverse. Usually I ask them what made you such a good hockey player. But, but I'm yeah. going to flip this around and said, by not playing hockey, what made you such a good coach? Well, there, I think two things. One is I really I
1: had a knack for breaking down skills uh, because I had taught myself basically how to shoot snapshots, uh, how to how to how to skate. I mean, I later on in life I went to like a Laura Stam power skating course, yeah. where when Laura herself was teaching it. Um, but but um, I think a I had a I had a passion for. Te- the little things um skill wise but but even more so i think i've i really felt like i had to learn a lot i became you know i i I like to think that even now 23 years later i i still want to learn but at that time i wanted to go to every coaching clinic i could i wanted to talk to every coach i could and i i felt like i always had something to prove and so I had a real passion. I, my little story uh, about, about my coaching philosophy goes back to coach pitch baseball right after T-ball when the coaches pitch. And um, I was, I was coaching my son's team of boys and girls. I don't even know how old they were, five or six years old. The key, the key to this thing was to be able to, the coach pitched underhand, you had to be able to pitch it right to where the kids swung the bat in order for them to hit the ball. And I, I just had this, I had this craving to just like, if I could find a way to um, pitch to these kids' sweet spot is what I call it, then they'd hit the ball and they'd feel good about themselves. And so, er, you know, really early in my career, I just, that's all I wanted to do was, was, to, was to help kids feel, feel good about themselves, be able to pitch to their sweet spot. You know, like, coaching got a lot more complicated as my career went on. But at, at its fundamental core, that, that's really what I believe in. And um, so I, I think that – and I don't want to categorize any other coaches. I, I mean, but I know that a lot of people that have just been – were good players didn't necessarily even know what made them good players. And I think that's why we rarely see, like, star players become star coaches. You know, Wayne Gretzky didn't, didn't succeed or – as, as a coach, at least by, by most measures. Um, and so I think for me, I always felt like I had to reverse engineer everything and, and figure out how to explain that. So that, that's really uh, so the short gotcha. answer
0: to that. That so wasn't how, even that
1: short of an answer.
0: <laughs> so how were how you able then to, you know, in your first head coaching job and uh, at Amherst college, how were you able then to, to translate that and build a program there? Cause you had tr- quite a lot of success there.
1: Yeah, well, I mean the one thing that was
0: that was really translated
1: right away was I was coaching in the same league so I knew who to recruit. I knew what the competition level was in the NESCAC League, which is very good. At that time, Middlebury was the gold standard, which they're back to being right now as they're defending that they just won a national championship. Um, Bo- Middlebury, Bode, and Williams were the best teams. I knew the kids to recruit. I knew what kind of kids went to those schools. I had gone to a school like that at Colby. Um, so I really enjoyed uh, coaching these, these overachieving players and had, had, had a lot of people that ultimately had major success after hockey as well met a lot of a lot of doctors came out of our programs um at, at Amherst but you know I think I think when I compare that to making the leap from Amherst to to UVM much different I didn't know the landscape as well as I knew going into Amherst so um you know really focused on recruiting Amherst one of the most prestigious academic schools in the country and um we did they did not have a good hockey program at that time and I think um, coming from Bowdoin where we had been one of the best best teams in the country uh, I had some credibility in the recruiting game of saying hey this is what we're going to build here and um, you know Amherst and Williams are kind of like the Harvard and Yale of small liberal arts colleges so had a had a major trump card in sort of being able to attract the the kind of student athletes that want to go to those schools. And, yeah. um, you know, it took a couple of recruiting classes to start getting the right people. And, and we had a really good culture and we had, we had a lot of fun and we won a lot. Awesome.
0: Okay. So um, then the obvious next question is, 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 you know, given your success, how did you end up at the uh, university of Vermont? What, what was that process like? And how did you get the job? Well, I will say that,
1: you know, coming from where I came from, I, did, I didn't have a plan to go from you know high school to Division three assistant to Division three head coach to Division one. I uh, I, th- I think I was kind of making it up as I went along. I was I was having success and enjoying it, and it wasn't until, like really, we won our first national championship in two thousand nine in Amherst. Um, I started to think about whether what I was doing, and I had tried. I think I had taken a different path, obviously my career path was different, but the way we coached, and even in those days, we were playing music at practice and doing some different things to try to, to try to keep things fun, um, whether that would translate to the division one level. And I started to have some conversations with some, some, some division one programs at that time. And I, but I, but it wasn't like I had to do this, be successful so I could become a division one coach. And I was already getting on in years let's just say and and i knew that it wasn't like i was going to chase every division one job around the country um ultimately we won again in 2010 and at that point you know i was i had proved you know had proven some success and so yeah i thought i thought about it i was getting a little restless this is the guy who you know changed careers and you know, went to work at Bowdoin for seven, the first year that I was quote unquote full-time at Bowdoin, I made $7,140 at age 41. And I know how much it was because I got hired for 7,000 and I got a 2% raise. So it's easy to, easy to remember that all these years later. So this is the guy that, you know, took some crazy risks when, you know, it might not have made that much sense to be a single parent and, um, and, and, change careers. And, um, so I was, I was open to it, but it was really only a place that I would want to live where I thought a program that I thought could be successful at that point. And so a couple of years after the, um, the second national championship at Amherst the 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 Vermont job opened and I was you know I thought I was very familiar with Burlington been here many times for recruiting and work camps up here and had stayed up here when we were playing tournaments at Middlebury and and such and you know I thought it was a it was potentially a good fit um the program hadn't had any success and I thought maybe I could do what I had done at Amherst which was take a program that had never had a winning season and you know, at, at Amherst, it happened in my fourth year. We started having success. We won national championships in my sixth and seventh years there. Um, I'm not going to lie. I thought, I thought we could, I thought, whoa, we could get better faster than it turned we'll out. Get back, to, we'll get, to we'll get back to the challenges. Uh, but but of, uh, anyways, that's how up, yeah. um, Jeff Shulman, you know, I think it's a unique, it's a unique environment. They had, um, they had reached out to me. Uh, and, and I did have an interest at the same time. And, um, yeah, the timing was good, and I think they they uh, they thought that that it was a good fit, and so did I. Awesome.
0: Okay, so let, let's talk about UVM then. So I, I, I learned yesterday, even though I, I grew up right near University of Vermont, I never realized what UVM actually stood for until yesterday, <laughs> which is yep. Universitas Veridis Montes, if I pronounced it properly. I always thought it was like University of Vermont Montpelier or something like that, but no, yeah. it's, actually, <laughs> yeah. it's actually a Latin word for Green Mountains. Um, so let's talk about, uh, you know, where you're located, um, similar to uh, we had Chris Donovan from St. Michael's on the program, also located in uh, Burlington, Vermont, so quite beautiful area neck of the woods um maybe just talk about you know, the, the the school the academics um and then some of the facilities specifically gutterson Fieldhouse, which is uh for those watching on the podcast uh, on video can can see in the background a beautiful barn
1: yeah and that's actually a, an older picture we now have uh we're in the midst of some renovation we got a new video scoreboard i can see our old scoreboard over your head there and new press box on. Boxes on the other side of the rink, and and uh, kind of a, a slow moving construction project, but uh, but it's happening. Um, I mean, I think Burlington's a really unique city um, in some respects. I had been to Madison, Wisconsin, before with my son visiting uh, for uh, to possibly go to school there, and I, I thought there was I thought it was a really neat, um, small city uh, with with a with a major state university uh, close by or in it, but like the downtown Burlington, um, I think it's a it's a safe, it's considered a safe campus. Um, and and I think that one of the things that I really knew about when I was interviewing for the job, uh, they were hosting the world championships for women. That same, I, I literally came up here to watch the semifinals a few days before I came back up here to interview for the job. So to get to sit in Gutterson and watch, uh, 4,000 people come in there to watch the US and Canada play in the semifinals. So they didn't play each other but to play consecutive games. Um, I was very well aware of the fact that, that there's no professional sports here that's a unique environment that um, the community really supports UVM athletics. Um, I had heard stories about how when women's basketball had been really good, they were outdrawing men's basketball. Um, And I really felt like if we could create a successful program, we'd get the support of the community. Um, And we've seen that in in ebbs and flows over the last few years, but we really saw it this year. And and I think that's really something that we want to build on. Uh, Academically, um, you know, when I was growing up, it was a much smaller school. Uh, I think it was only like 3,500 or 4,000 students, and it was considered like by far... Um, the most prestigious public university in New England back when I was having some of my my high school classmates go here. Um, so it has a, it has a, it has an old school feel. Um, we're the fourth oldest university in New England after like Harvard, uh, Dartmouth and and Brown, maybe or possibly Yale in there. So it's got some really older buildings that have a classic New England university feel. It's a beautiful campus. We've got views from right from the middle of campus. On you look one direction, you can see the Green Mountains um, and and Mount Mansfield, which is the highest peak in Vermont, which still has snow on it. And if you look the opposite way, you've got Lake Champlain and the um, the Adirondacks on the other on the other side. So. Um, you know, my goal all along was to build a program that that people wanted to come to uh, for for the the strength of the academics, I have been very successful um, coaching high achieving academic kids at, at Amherst and so that was part of the plan, but also to just to create a culture where people really enjoyed their experience playing hockey and um, yeah, it took a lot longer, necessary, you know, to to sort of see the results of it. Not that there weren't pieces of that that were happening all along, but to get the pieces to kind of go together took took a bit longer than than I than I would have I would have liked.
0: Yeah, so I mean, I know you you've spoken about this before, but uh, you know, I, I believe something you had said was along the lines of you underestimated the differences of moving from Division Three to Division One. What what were some of those key differences?
1: Well from just from a strictly from the job standpoint I just was talking to somebody about this this morning that you know like I think being a D3 coach you're like that sole proprietor of a small a small mom and pop shop uh, where you're you're the person opening the doors in the morning and manning the cash register and and having the great relationships with the customers who are coming in and buying coffee and you're closing it up at the end of the day and you might have a few people that are that are working for you here and there, um, but at, at D one, you're really like the CEO of a small a small company. You've got a bigger staff. You got two two assistant coaches instead of one. In Division three, I would have an assistant for two years, and then we would start all over again with somebody else. So I did most of the recruiting myself. Um, and, and I thought one of my main jobs was to actually mentor these coaches and, and move them along in their careers. And one of the things I'm most proud of in my career is I have a very large coaching tree, and um, it's awesome to see how successful these people are, Division one, Division three, head coaches, uh, assistant coaches, um, and one in Canada. So that, that part of it is very different. You know, you've got two assistant coaches. you got to be able to delegate you can't do everything yourself. Um, there's a lot more administrative fundraising media obligations that I ever had in division three, a full-time equipment manager. I was sharpening skates on the side in division three, um, you know, athletic trainer, um, strength coaches, All you know, you're, you really need to be, to be an effective leader and communicator. And it took me a while to find my, my voice in that. And, um, and and the recruiting piece, I obviously wasn't recruiting to the level of of hockey Easter or to Division One, even though you don't get to be good at in Division Three without recruiting Division One caliber players, frankly. But not the kids that are the difference makers. And and I think you know I learned very quickly when I was coaching against Marie Philippe Poulin or Kendall Coyne or Alex Carpenter that there was there wasn't any scheme to out-coach the talent of some of these players. So, rarely in Division three would you have somebody that could take over a game like those guys, for example. And BU had, a, had, a, had quite a lot of those players, Victoria Bach, Rebecca Leslie over the years, and, um, and BC did as well. Um, yeah. So, you know, I think it took a while to sort of figure out what I didn't know and to, to put in place the, the right processes so that we could recruit the kind of kids that we had a, had a good shot at getting. And that, that's been a little bit of why our, our roster is so diverse.
0: And and we'll get to your roster in just a second, but talk about the team that you built there. Um, so your two assistant coaches have been with you for a few years now. Um, yep. Jess Koizumi, who uh, who played, you know, women's pro hockey, I know with a couple of previous guests of ours, and uh, also highly involved with USA Hockey because I've seen her at a couple of events, and then Alex Geddon. So maybe just talk about your, your staff and, and kind of how you divide responsibilities and, and how they've helped you.
1: Yeah, I mean, honestly, um, I couldn't – I wouldn't be – I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't be on this – podcast I wouldn't be coach of the year if it wasn't for those guys and, and I, I had had the good fortune to have gotten some awards in d3 and, and I don't don't mean to diminish the impact of the assistance there but you really are kind of like a one-arm paper hanger in d3 and 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 part of the key right now is to let these guys be good at what they're what they're good at and so Alex came to us as a student he was transferring to UVM he was a uh, uh, the 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 woman who's the head coach at St. Paul's School um, is friend, friends with Alex and, and her family. Alex grew up at, at the St. Paul School, and he was transferring to UVM, and he just wanted an opportunity to be a manager and be involved, and we we immediately put him to work. This was, this was my third year uh, doing stats in practice. That's kind of one of my things I'm known for, and just kind of being a... Uh, an all-around helper pushing pucks whatever we needed at practice and worked his way into a a volunteer assistant coach his last year where he was officially on the staff working with our goalies he was he was a goalie and um and now he coaches the goalies he coaches the forwards and he runs the power play does a lot of individual skill sessions he's has a lot of uh, the same qualities that I kind of see in myself, uh, in in terms of having a growth mindset, he'll eat up any any hockey training that he can find. He's really found his his voice as a skill instructor, working with some of our elite players, um, and obviously has done a great job with our goalies over the last few years. And so he, at the year he graduated, he went to Maine for for one year, and we had had. Had some coach, some staff changes after the one year at Maine, and, and it, it didn't. The, literally, the day we lost an assistant, I called the head coach at Maine and said, "Hey, is it okay if I talk to Alex?" And he he couldn't couldn't come back fast enough. He's a UVM alum. He's passionate about the university. He loves it here. Loves our kids, and uh, he's been a great fit from day one. And it's been extremely gratifying to watch him grow into a, such a prominent role. Jess, I got to know Jess working at a USA Hockey camp. Um, I think it was around 2010 or so. We worked together coaching a team at one of the St. Cloud development camps, and really hit it off. Um, it was very evident that very evident from the beginning that we shared similar philosophies of 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 how the impact that we wanted to make on student athletes, and so um, the opportunity arose when when we had a, lost both of our assistants in 2017. And, and, um, I was able to convince her that she could have a big impact here. She had been at Yale for a while. She had had one year at Ohio state. And, you know, I was really looking for someone that could be a partner in, in continuing to improve. We were still working on the culture of our program, even though we had just come off a semifinal appearance, um, still really had a long way to go with our culture. And she's just so passionate. Uh, about, about making an impact on kids for the rest of their lives. Um, came in with a big emphasis on skill, skill work. Um, she had been a national team player also, um, during her career. And, uh, was really able to come in and work with some of our elite players and be something that attracted the elite players to, to consider us. We, we put a heavy emphasis on player development in our program. She works – even though she was a forward, she loves uh, – she's been working with our D for the last four years and um, has had made a huge impact on their ability to be offensive. Um, does a lot of work with deception with our forwards and, and is a tremendous coach of the penalty kill. Uh, a few years ago, we had the best penalty kill in the country. This year, we were, I think, sixth, sixth best PK rate. Um, takes a lot of pride in it. Does a lot of individual skill sessions, and videos, and uh, individual video work with our players over the course of a week. So um, I'm really blessed to have these guys. They're really we're really a, a team, and having the continuity of the same staff for the last four years, or well, having having Jess for five, and having had Alex for four, we've all kind of grown into our roles. And uh, and frankly, COVID might have helped us in in sort of figuring out how to, how to be most effective with, you know, limited time and resources last year. And, and, uh, we got a lot of laughs amongst three of us and <laughs> it's really, it's really fun group to work
0: with. Yeah. And so I'm assuming you kind of do a little bit dividing, uh, Conquering, so what do I recruiting. do? Are you, are you gonna uh, ask me what I do? Yeah, right. no, I'm gonna uh, <laughs> well, we're gonna get to we're gonna get to you being the actual coach in, in a moment. <laughs> let's talk, let's talk a little bit about your team makeup. So, what I was really impressed with, and and not that unusual for kind of those northeast uh schools, is very international flavor. Yeah, Finland, Czechia, Austria, you even have Canada and Minnesota as uh, players on your <laughs> roster. So, um, you know, like what is your recruiting philosophy? Uh, clearly, you're you're, you're prepared to go anywhere to find the best players
1: yeah and this is part of you know what I learned over those first few years was um, it was it was hard for us to get the highest profile recruits either out of the New England area who tended to like to go to the Boston Beanpot schools um, the best players in the Toronto area we weren't we weren't the, the greatest attraction we were either too far away hard to get to you got you know it's hard to fly from Toronto to Burlington and it's easier to fly from Toronto to Boston. There were close schools like Clarkson and St. Lawrence. There were reasonable drives for families. So it took us a bit and the Western Canadians weren't exactly flocking to Burlington either. So you know we 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 dipped our toes in all those waters, working camps in Kelowna and various other places Vancouver um it it took, it took probably till it was, it was January 2016 when sort of the light bulb went off and that was in my fourth year, I think about what we needed to do in terms of geographic focus in recruiting and even in like care, the character of kids that we were recruiting. And so, um, Funny story that's not a compliment to me is uh, there, was a co- there was a coach in Montreal at Dawson College, Scott Lambden, who's now a, a scout for Hockey Canada, and uh, he called me one day and he said, "Hey, listen, I don't want to, I don't want to tell you what you should be doing, but why aren't you recruiting our kids?" And, and I said, "Honestly, Scott, I don't have a good, I don't have a good answer for that. <laughs> we should be." I got my got my butt up there to the next game, and and we, you know, the first person we ended up recruiting out of his program was our, our graduating captain Christina Shanahan and so made a conscious effort in in Quebec uh, at the same time i had been longtime friends with Peter Elander who is longtime assistant at North Dakota from Sweden former Swedish Olympic coach and he had been inviting me over since my first year at UVM to work camps that he had in Sweden and um so i'd started to get a taste of the europeans and who was there and made some connections with some other coaches that were working and just you know networking and we got one one girl from finland um and then our first czech player that we got was Sammy kolarat who uh, just played in the olympics for for czech republic um but i'd seen her at the world the world championships in in budapest in 2014 So, you know, that, that's really where it started. And then, you know, through the various connections, um, and through continuing to go to those camps, that's where I saw Teresa Schapzal, uh, when she was going the summer before her junior year, before her grade 11 year, saw her there. Um, and then once you get a few, I think the word gets out that you're friendly to those, to those countries and they have friends and, um, Next year, we've got a player from France, a player from Denmark, a player, another player from Finland coming. So, um, Jess Jess sort of took the Jess Kazumi sort of took the torch for me uh, in doing a lot of European recruiting, um, and and has continued to go over there and work camps. And um, you know, occasionally we'll make a, a single trip over there to watch somebody, but mostly it's, it's through camps. That now Peter doesn't run, but uh, CHS Harry Rosenholtz
0: uh, runs runs an annual
1: camp okay. in Europe.
0: So, and, and I'm assuming uh, you're going to be in Madison, Wisconsin next month for the under 18s, and because that's probably a prime recruiting opportunity for international players. So. <laughs> I, I don't know. Probably no. We we won't
1: actually because okay. um, we don't need. You know, the ages of those kids. Like we're we're obviously done with our, our 22 class and don't have much available in 23 either. Um, so yes, um, I think by the, you know, we've already sort of know where we're going with, with some of these, some of these spots. Um, so, um, not, not for sure going to Madison.
0: Gotcha. Okay. Well, you actually then helped answer one of my later on questions around recruiting. So we'll get back to that in a second. Um, okay. Let me get to the most important question. Same question I asked Chris Donovan from, from St. Michael's, are your players allowed to go skiing
1: during the season? Um, no, but that doesn't mean that it hasn't ever happened. Um, ter- <laughs> Teresa Shopsall is, a, is a, who is just a phenomenal athlete and, you know, was hockey's player of the year this year from Austria. She does ski when she goes home over, over Christmas. Um, she snowboards actually, but, um, we've had, I, I do, I do know of a few covert, trips that have happened but um but generally
0: it's not something that's that we that we encourage I got it don't ask don't tell I'm, uh, i I understand how it works all right Probably. so so uh, I've been talking a lot to you coaches recently about what it takes to kind of build a successful program I'm wondering at the NCAA women's hockey division one level what does it take to win is it the the best players is it the best coaches is it the resources because when you look at like the last two years uh, champions, uh, Wisconsin and Ohio State, they have not only do they have the best players, but they got a tremendous amount of resources behind them and tremendous yes. support. So is it really the best team that gets off the bus or is there something else?
1: Well, I think I think in any sport, the best team that gets off the bus has a huge advantage over a- anybody else. And I think it look, it doesn't have to be all the best players. Um Let's face it. Anybody that's watched hockey ever in their life, I think, would would say the best goalie can be a great can be a great equalizer. Um, I, I certainly think that the resource, like we're not a school that has has great resources um, for you know for a state for a state school. We're we're not in the same ballpark at all with with the Big Ten schools and with with others that that prioritize hockey or or even athletics, um, but I think we've proven that we could do it without it. Um, we were very intentional about our culture. We're really upfront about what we believe and what our values are as a program. Um, you can't do it without a certain amount of of good players. there's there's no there's no it kind of goes back to the story I was telling about, you know, trying to coach against Kendall Coyne speed there there was no there was no scheme that if she if she blocked a shot she was going to have a breakaway and nobody was nobody was going to catch her um so you could say well never shoot the puck but that's that's not a winning thing so I look I think it's, it's a combination of all of the above I think if you have the resources you have a you have a huge advantage in in being able to uh present yourself as a as a program that's that's well-funded and well taken care of and you feed the kids and have training tables and things that, that we don't have that, that others, that, and not, not even most other schools probably don't have, but I know some schools have. Um, But I I do think that, yes, of course, when two good teams get off the bus, I think coaching has a lot to do with it. And, And I don't necessarily mean matching lines or, or, game, game, in game decisions, but, uh, game planning, uh, uh, you know, strategies the way you want to play. Um, but I think you got to have a, you gotta, you gotta be close enough in talent for the coaching to, to be able to make a difference. But, um, I really think that culture has become such a big part of it that, um, that it, that becomes a big recruiting tool when, when you have kids visit and they meet your team and they see people that are happy and, and bought in and having, having a good, you know, a good experience. And, and let's face it, not everything that we do can be fun all the time doing sprints or some of the work in the weight room or things like that are, are fun all the time. But I think when, uh, when you have a good culture people start to see that and, and that can be as good a recruiting tool as anything.
0: Gotcha. Okay. So that leads into my, my, my next question, which, which is around the theme of what it's like to play at Vermont and, and playing for you. So um, maybe you can just help me with an expression. I think you have called, which goes something like chop some wood and carry some water. What, what does that mean? <laughs> yeah. Well, that means that we, we always got to take care of the fundamentals.
1: Um, there's, there's a great book by Joshua Medcalf by that, by that title. And it's sort of like everybody wants to, uh, you know, to 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 see a beautiful house built, but you can't do it without the foundation. You can't do it without building it sequentially. You can't put the roof on before you put the walls on. And I think chop wood, carry water refers to the idea that we've got to be good at the fundamentals, um, and and that's on and off the ice. Like I, I don't think that you can cheat your way to being good. And 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 in the old days. Um, when there was, uh, people were going around in chuck wagons and going, whatever, you know, someone had to go get the water for the day and chop the wood. So we had a fire and, and, and I think we want to make sure that we don't lose sight of the fact that we've got to be good at fundamentals before we can be good at the, the more fancy stuff.
0: Gotcha. Okay, that's love. That so the um, parents have asked me to ask coaches because they really want to know what it's like to go play for for a coach. And they go, "What? What? What's some of those insights?" So one of the one of the questions that one of the parents uh, suggested that I ask is kind of, what, "What's your favorite drill during practice and why?" Um. So this is
1: where our um, our coaching staff is different. Like the things that we bring are very different. Me personally. I like decision making drills. I so Jess is really, really good at skill drills and putting out obstacles and we're gonna like toe drag around this tire and we're gonna push and pull around this this other obstacle. And and Alex is kind of kind of good at setting up some situations. I really like simple things where we're we're putting them in a situation where they don't know what's gonna happen next and have to make a good play right away. So I um I was talking to Alex one day, this um this past season, and I just had this idea of this drill. We named it after a little restaurant that we like to go to where it's just three people milling around and they just at the, at the defensive blue line and you give them a puck and, and they're, they're, they're facing like the, their backs are to the net that they're going to attack their backs are to the neutral zone and you just put a puck out somewhere and it's like, okay, now sort out this situation here and make three good passes before we, before we attack the net. Things like that. So I, I like to – I think we have a really nice combination of, of, you know, the basic flow drills that that you sort of need to do to warm up and, and you know, take care of some situations like two-on-ones and things like that. And then uh, games or – and then unscripted drills where you got to figure out this situation here. It could be a 3 on zero, could be a two-on-one, it could be a one-on-one. And then, and then games, I'm a big games guy, uh, have been since I learned that from Michelle Amidon and then kind of took it to another level. at Amherst, where we, we started, uh, creating practice competitions and keeping stats in games. So, um, I don't know if I could name one specific thing, but the poor house three on O is the drill <laughs> that I was just talking about. Yeah. Um, and it's not the, not the highest class restaurant in, in, uh, Burlington
0: all right yeah well oh. uh perfect all right that's a great answer um so now let's transition to what you're like during a game so my my i got two kind of easy questions for you one you know are are, are, are you are you vibrant and loud or are you yelling at the refs uh during the game and then how do you decide how many mints to consume during a period
1: oh boy who is feeding you these questions or are you watching me uh, that's really that's really funny um I've transitioned away from mints. I'm going to answer that. Um, I'm back to gum now. One one brand new piece of gum per period. I can't unwrap it until I get on the bench, which means I'm putting the wrapper somewhere where someone's not going to like to see it. Um, <laughs> I used to, I used to go I used to go one mint per period, and somehow um, I wouldn't chew on it ever. I would just kind of let it dissolve in my mouth, which is crazy because I eat those. I have a I have a bowl of them in my office and I almost never do that when I normally eat them So um that's that's it. So we're back to gum right now. And um and my dentist didn't have anything to do with that. But um no, I'm not crazy yelling at the refs. It doesn't mean that I don't get to a boiling point where where I do. I learned that, that I learned long ago that the, the team fed off me. I learned this in my Amherst days. Um, early in my Amherst days, the f- team fed off my energy, um, and so if I was frantic and yelling at that, yelling at the reps, yelling at the players, that they were going to play kind of frantic. So I tend to be on the quiet side, um, you know. Like like anybody, I I try to um, I try to make insightful comments. Um, I think this is another thing that's different between Division One and Division Three, where and division three, there was two of us. So one of us coached the forwards and one of us coached the D and I was very involved in coaching a position. Then I got to division one. It was like, I got someone coaching the D I got someone coaching the forward. What am I supposed to do? I'll watch. And, and, uh, I, I have, um, liked to think of myself as, as grandpa Jim now that I am officially grandpa Jim and, and grandpa Jim is like the, you know, the sage wise old one who just, um, uh, you know, comes in and, and gets to play with the babies, but doesn't have to take 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 them all the time, mm-hmm. <laughs> change the diapers, and all those things. So, I, like I, I joke about that, but I, I try to be as calm as I can. I think there's a there were some times this year where the team really needed the energy from all of us, and and I really enjoyed really being engaged in the game and really trying to pump the players up. But most of the time, I'm pretty quiet
0: okay cool awesome thank you thank you for going into all that detail because now yeah, so it really I, gives, I, gives it really gives you know potential recruits a real you know flavor for what to expect when when they go to vermont yeah. so that's that's really helpful um so uh before we wrap up i got three questions on on the recruiting side of things because you know i got parents okay. saying hey uh, these are the questions that i got uh and we're going to kind of keep this more generic left, doesn't need to be uh vermont specific um but mm-hmm. starting really simply how, how do you think players have changed uh since you start first started coaching 20 years ago
1: Oh, the skill level is unbelievable. Um, the advent of skill coaches and individual coaching has 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 made the skill level so high. And I think, I think we're poised for another huge jump in the next two to three years. I have a whole theory of kids that were born from mid two thousands on, like two thousand six on, where their you know, there have been a couple of Olympics and the NCAA championships only started in 2000, 2001. Um that that it's become a more mainstream sport and, and so those kids that were born from then on, like the coaching that they're getting at younger levels, the access to high level training. We have this unbelievable training center in Vermont called Elevato 2, which you may see around on social media. I heard of them these guys are that's uh, Tori um, Mitchell's uh
0: Torrey Mitchell's uh, company yeah. Yeah. Tory yeah.
1: Mitchell yeah. and Pete and Pete Lennis. Um, yeah. so I, I think the skill level is is just light years ahead. Of where it was 20 years ago, and not not that there weren't good players then, but I think right now, um, I would say in in four to five years, the the real benefit, the beneficiaries of this is going to be Division three, in my opinion, because there's going to be there's not enough Division one programs for all these really good players to go play, and and so um, I'm really excited about that.
0: So that's actually a great insight. Is that that the the, the pyramid is just getting much wider, so therefore, yeah. uh, not just D one is going to go up, but D three is going to benefit from the higher quality players. So it it has to. Yeah. That's awesome. Okay. Um, second question. So uh, related to recruiting. Once again, not necessarily Vermont specific, but what are Division I coaching staffs doing right now um, in early May as they plan for the recruiting season, specifically June 15th, to, to kind of hit uh, next month? Because as you kind of mentioned, you know, most teams probably have their 2022 rosters already set, probably quite a few commits for 2023. What, you know, do do they have, you know, some kind of recruiting board where they're trying to figure out what the pieces are? And uh, how are they? um, looking at things, you know, when it comes to transfers versus kind of freshman recruits?
1: Uh, great question. I I think it varies. The transfer portal is definitely, um, you know, thrown a wrinkle in that nobody really sort of saw coming and, and the, the fifth year COVID eligibility has also, has also changed that, but I'll just say, I hope, that most most coaches are taking a break right now. I know we're kind of happy that we, we're in a quiet period in, in women's hockey in in May, and we end up being pretty busy right from the end of the season up till now. And so I think we do need a little bit of um, time to to kind of regroup and recharge. But yes, the the plans are to. Um, you know, to be ready for June 15th. We were recruiting in April through, uh, well, through late April, um, both at USA Hockey Nationals. I think most people would be there, uh, Ontario Provincials, Quebec Dodge Cup, uh, College Hockey Showcase in Florida. There were there were a bunch of things that people were doing. But I think right now the, the main thing is to be ready for June 15th and who do you want to call? Um, who are, you know, we, we still, and I, and I, I think – you know this this ripple effect of the fifth year of uh, for COVID is going to you know impact for another three years. Um, you know we we had pushed people back and other you know people that were committed been pushed back. So um, I think we're going to still have a, a relatively few number of spots for the next couple of years. And I think that um, it becomes it becomes very specific, like a need versus sort of hey we're replacing a whole class like in some places some schools might have only two or three kids graduating from a class of five six or seven because that people are staying um so I, I think that i think that it's not unusual that people are gonna like save a scholarship for someone that pops up in the transfer portal that you won't know about until you know next fall or you know a grad transfer type person um, so I, I think that's 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 made it that's made this this puzzle, which is just an ever changing picture, uh, more comp more complicated.
0: Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay, so what advice would you give parents uh, as they plan for the the spring and summer for events to attend, because like you said, you know. You, uh, you know a lot of coaches have told me like don't go to six showcases because you're going to see the same coach every time and there's only like once you're on their radar you're on their radar like what advice would you give them on on how to plan out what to do in the summer
1: um i'm a little old school in this thinking but um i i do think i do think that one or maybe two showcases one or you know one tournament to be seen at you know, where you're not on a team necessarily, or, or, you know, there's the bean town or something like that. I would really still advise people to, to spend that money on development in the summer that, that um, it's important to be seen and, and you don't want to not be seen at all in the summer, because that's one of the things that's changed a lot in recruiting since I started when I, even when I started in D1, there was one coach that was going to miss a third, or more of our games because they were going to be recruiting. Now there's so much recruiting in the summer and we feel like we want our coaches to be here to coach our team that we don't want to commit to not having our staff to here for our own games. And so I, I do think, so it's important that you do be seen. You don't need to be seen everywhere. And frankly, I think that ends up hurting people more, not only because they spend more money than they need to, but, um, like sometimes when coaches like form an opinion of you, it's not going to change. So if they saw you at one place, unless you make a huge change, how are you going to make a huge change by by doing some development? You, find, you know, there's so many programs all over North America now, whether it's small rinks or or just individual coaches that can get on a big sheet of ice or small sheets of ice or these boutique rinks and stuff like that. Um, that. That I think it really needs to be a mix of both and. Um, You know, especially, you know, when you look at, um, you know, uh, a company or, you know, an organization that puts on multiple showcases, the chances of them having, like, significantly different coaches at every single one of them is probably, and I don't want to, like, those things have have helped more people be seen, and I'm I'm not bashing on any of them. It's just, I think, sometimes I talk to people about how much money they're spending in the summer to to travel to Boston for a weekend tournament and hotel rooms and flights and things. And you're doing that three or four times when you could take half that money and put it towards, towards development, like a camp that, that um, emphasizes development. I don't have a camp right now. I used to have a camp and I was swimming against the tide um, that, that was development camp. It wasn't a recruiting camp. It didn't mean we couldn't recruit somebody out of there, but it was designed to be, you know, three times on the ice a day to, to work on skills and learn how to go from A to B to C, not just to go out and skate around a couple of cones, be patted on the head and, you know, maybe I'll know your name by the end of it. That wasn't the gist of it. And, and uh, I would love to see um, more of that that stuff. Okay.
0: Well, you actually stole my last question. If, if you're going to be running your Summit hockey camp again this summer. So, uh um what what are, are, are does the uh, does the actual school put on any hockey camps or um you know if if the the best way to see you in the spring or summer is actually just by going to the regular events that uh you know that that show where you or your coaches are are going to be uh, attending. For for right now
1: that's the best way for us.
0: Um we we
1: we couldn't have Summit um the summer, well, the summer of COVID was also. We were supposed to be under construction. We weren't going to have ice. There was a little uncertainty about what the summer was going to look like. Could have done it, um, but um, but chose, chose not to. And um, uh, Jess Jess Kazumi does have a little a little clinic that she's doing um, at the end of at the end of June. I'm not sure how um it's on the
0: website that uh, people can find on the it. website
1: yeah. so that yeah, yeah that, that that's the only thing we we used to also really benefit from uh having the naha labor day tournament here in burlington uh and this is the first year they're gonna they've moved it to boston now that naha has left vermont so we yeah. did have a, a little clinic around that before but uh but that's not not a thing anymore.
0: Gotcha. Well, Jim, I, I really want to thank you so, so much for coming on the Chance App podcast. I mean, it was great to hear about your coaching history and <laughs> how uh, every, all the success that you've had at Vermont. And it's specifically what what I think uh, most parents really care about is, is what it's like to play at Vermont and, you know, what it is, uh, you know, you have your style of coaching and what the p- folks can expect. So thank you so much for doing this. Well, thanks for having me, Ray. Appreciate it. And uh, again, appreciate what you're doing for for our sport. I really want to thank Jim for coming on the podcast. It was great to hear about his unique coaching journey, how he and his staff like to coach their team, and his advice for players and parents as the off-season recruiting period begins. You can find Jim's contact info on the team's website, or you can also connect with him via his Champs app profile. The link to his profile is in the show notes. And remember, if you got something out of today's episode, we'd really appreciate it if you'd like, follow, subscribe, and even better, if you could leave us a review so we can keep sharing this important hockey information with folks just like you.